0: Happy Thursday, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Elon Musk is going after George Soros in perhaps the funniest way imaginable. The left's favorite talking point when it comes to George Soros is taking George Soros and all that he is and all that he does and ignoring his political activism and how he spends his money and instead accusing anybody who identifies George Soros as a very influential liberal of being anti-Semitic. Why? Because George Soros is Jewish. Now this obviously makes no sense whatsoever because identifying George Soros as an influential, a very influential and very destructive leftist and enabler of leftists is based on his actions. That's not who he is, that's what he's doing or it's not an immutable part of his identity. I suppose it's who it's part of his character who he is, but it's not part of his, his religion, it's not part of his ethnic heritage, nothing like that whatsoever. But the left wants you to feel that you are a bad person if you criticize George Soros. So Elon Musk criticizes George Soros and boy oh boy is the left going wild. We're gonna break that down. Plus the left is trying to distract us from something, right? They're trying to distract us from one very specific thing that George Soros is doing that is wreaking havoc in our country. And I I found some statistics that I wanna share with you about the impact of George Soros' so-called progressive prosecutors. George Soros calls them reform-minded prosecutors, which They very well may be, but what are they trying to reform? What are they trying to transform? We're going to talk about these statistics because it gives us a little bit better idea why the left freaks out whenever we mention the name Soros. Plus, I asked you guys on social media what the most controversial topics that you could think of are. You guys sent me some wild suggestions, so we're going to read through those. We're going to talk about the things that... I suppose polite society isn't even the right phrase here because it's not that these are vulgar topics, it's not that they're socially taboo because they're indelicate. Really, the regime has told us we're not allowed to talk about these topics, so what are we gonna do? We are going to talk about them. Let's get to it. wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Okay. Before we get into the George Soros stuff, actually, um, I want to explain one of the things that I'm trying to do on our new website, lizwheeler.com. There are certain times on the show when when my team is sitting around and we're brainstorming what we're going to talk about today. We're putting together the different elements. That means the videos and the photos and the tweets for the show. We're talking about the points that we're going to make as I sit here discussing um, all these important things with you. And sometimes certain stories don't make it into the show. Sometimes it's a matter of, Hey, we don't have enough time for that. Sometimes the story doesn't fit in. It's just too random. It's too much. uh, It's too difficult to segue from a all the way to Z. Sometimes it's just practical reasons why a story doesn't fit in. And then sometimes there are stories that are just so shocking. Like I'm talking shocking level. We talk about a lot of heavy stuff on the show, right? Like I'm fully aware of that. We talk about a lot of things that are disturbing, and in a sense, I think... I think we all have gotten a little desensitized to the shocking stuff that we talk about because we talk about it so frequently. But once in a while, there's something that really is so disturbing that I just don't feel quite right about broadcasting it because I know that there are a lot of people that listen to this show with their children, a lot of people who listen to this while they work out and they don't want to get sick to their stomach listening to things they need to listen to. And so one of the things I'd want to do on my website is I want to be able to tell you, hey, here's a story that, you can decide when it's the right time to go watch this video or go read this story, this report of what happened. Um, So it's not quite as surprising as when it happens on the show. Because you you know my philosophy. I don't want to ever dumb down this content. I don't want to be the gatekeeper and withhold graphic things from you like some other um, commentators do or some other networks do. I'm not about that at all. But I do want you to have the agency, you to have that decision-making power to decide, okay, I'm ready to see this. Now I'm going to go watch this. So for example, today on, if you go to lizwheeler.com, there's a video that I highly recommend that you watch. I think it's really important. It's it's difficult to watch. It's from TikTok. It's a compilation of three TikTok videos. These are three young people who went through the transgender surgery process. They were men. Um, They quote unquote transitioned to women, and they're talking about the repercussions or the aftermath of their surgeries. Again, it's very, very graphic and it's pretty difficult to listen to because you and I know that there's really nothing that they can do, nothing that we can do to help the bodies of these of these young people that were mutilated. But I really, really encourage you to watch it because I mean, man, this is what we're facing. This is the reality of what we're facing with this agenda. It's not just the ideological part, which is really important. It's also the physical part. So I posted that video on LizWheeler.com. Go over, take a look at it when you are ready, and if you can, share it with people who you think it might hit home, because it's a pretty emotional wash, LizWheeler.com. Okay, George Soros, so let's start with the funny part of this story. This It really cracks me up when Elon Musk, he has the largest Twitter platform in the world. I know that there are a couple of people who probably have a bigger following, but no one pays more attention to anybody's tweets on Twitter than we do to Elon Musk's tweets. He's the one right now. In a sense, he's like Donald Trump 2.0 in the sense that any little thing, even a smiley face or an eye roll emoji that he sends out, everyone's got notifications for Elon Musk's tweets, everyone's listening to what he says. Well, he sent out this tweet, we're gonna show this on the screen here, about George Soros. You can see this, and he just says, Soros reminds me of Magneto, Magneto. Now, my control room was kind enough. Uh, I'm gonna tell a little story on myself here because I deserve it. My control room was kind enough to make sure that I pronounced this name um, correctly. It's an X-Men villain. So, most of you probably knew that, but I don't watch those, <laughs> I don't watch those. Those movies, I um, I mean, I don't really watch a lot of movies, but definitely not those. Um, but he's a villain in, in this series and he, Elon Musk compared George Soros to an X-Men villain, which you don't even have to be a fan of those movies. I think that's funny, and I don't even know who this character is. I did Google this character, and of course the left immediately comes out and says, oh, this makes Elon Musk anti-Semitic. This is an anti-Jewish slur because apparently this villain um, in, in the Marvel series is or has Jewish origin. First of all, I don't know what that has to do with anything. I don't think that this villain it's supposed to be a villain because he is Jewish. That's just part of the backstory of his character. I think that the character, the villain in the in the series, is supposed to be a Holocaust survivor, as is George Soros. Um, again, the Jewishness of the villain doesn't make him. That's not the reason that he's a villain. So I don't know how it could be anti-Semitic for Elon Musk to compare George Soros. It seems like it's just, I don't know, a very humorous, very funny comparison. But the left is freaking out about this. Someone on Twitter um, said listen, Elon, and this wasn't one of the leftists that was absolutely uh, freaking out on Musk, but said, listen, you should, you should assume that George Soros has good intentions. A villain in, in a comic book series or in the Marvel Universe doesn't have good intentions. They're a villain at heart. George Soros has good intentions. You should assume that. And um, Musk responded and said this. I'm gonna show this on the screen too. He said, you assume they are good intentions. They are not. He wants to erode the very fabric of civilization. Soros hates humanity. <laughs> now you see that little, that little, on the screen there, when we showed the tweet, you see that little um, row of numbers, the analytics underneath the tweet. When we pulled that tweet, it had been viewed over 7.3 million times. 7.3 million times. That is a lot of people to hear Elon Musk say that George Soros wants to erode humanity or what is it? Hates humanity. He wants to erode the fabric of civilization because he hates humanity. This is not actually that controversial of a statement to make. It's a harsh statement, but it's not controversial when you're analyzing somebody else's actions and the repercussions of their actions. And it's so obvious that George Soros does not care about humanity. He would not use his billions of dollars to fund the things that he funds if he wanted what's best for humanity. And he wouldn't he wouldn't do it with good intentions and continue doing it once he saw um, once he saw the fruit of his actions if he indeed cared about humanity. So I think Elon Musk is exactly right here. but this is this is this is what I wanted to do today. So I was digging a little bit into this. I was digging a little bit into some numbers and statistics about George Soros and what he's done with his money, what he's done with his open society's foundation. Now Open Society's Foundation, let's stop right there for a second. Open Society's Foundation is a perfect example of what we talked about on the show earlier in the week as it related to Congresswoman AOC and her former aide who is a self-avowed communist who's now on the executive committee of the New York Communist Party. She's a, little, a literal communist boss and she used to work for AOC. And the point that we made earlier in the week is that yes, the aide to AOC at the time that she was working for AOC admitted that she was a communist. AOC herself has never said, oh, I am a communist. I am a Marxist. But the point of that was, well, you don't have to say that you're a communist to be a communist. You don't have to admit that you're a Marxist to be a Marxist. If you adhere to Marxist ideology, then that's evidence based on your behavior, based on your Policy action or your policy preferences based on your actions, and oftentimes based on your words as well. And it's perfectly appropriate to deduce that someone is behaving as a communist, that someone is a Marxist based on the totality of how they behave without them identifying as a Marxist, without them identifying as communists. And this is true of George Soros. There's been a lot of accusations over the years that George Soros is this or that in the next. He's a socialist, he's a communist, he's a Marxist, but it's always Um, relegated by the left. It's always relegated to the corner, those accusations. They're they're belittled, they're demeaned. Anybody who partakes in that analysis and comes to the conclusion that George Soros is in fact a Marxist is told that they are an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. And so what I want to do right now is I want to set the record straight. George Soros obviously is a Marxist. and Open Society Foundation is the first clue to this. Because what does that mean? Open Society Foundation, an open society. What is an open society? An open society. If we look at how George Soros defines this, an open society means a society without borders. It means a nation that is not a nation state, a nation that doesn't that doesn't secure their borders. He's quite literally calling for our society here in the United States to be um, open to anybody that wants to come in and out, to have this this um, idea that you can just move around from nation to nation and not belong to any space, not belong to any community, not belong to any, any group of people, not belong to any country. And that, that is actually an idea, a Marxist idea that was articulated by Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci was the cultural Marxist who took economic, the economic Marxism of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and said, well, wait a second, in order to um, spark a Marxist revolution, it's not going to happen when um, the working class just gets mad at the ruling class and thus a revolution." begins because the working class is too comfortable in the um, in the cultural norms of the ruling class. And so in order to spark a Marxist revolution, we have to first attack culture. We have to first dismantle the cultural norms on which the working class relies. And one of the cultural norms, one of these civil institutions that Gramsci identifies, is a nation state, is the idea of secured borders. So it doesn't take a Marxist scholar, it takes a very basic understanding of Marxism, a basic understanding of the history of Marxism, how it's evolving, to see that just the phrase open societies, which is the hallmark hallmark institution or platform through which George Soros uh, commits his political activism, that his platform is entirely based on one of Antonio Gramsci's um, pillars of society that Gramsci wanted to tear down in order to spark a Marxist revolution, right? So that's the first thing. So George Soros doesn't have to admit that he's a Marxist, that he that he embraces a communist ideology in order for us to accurately identify him as a Marxist and as a communist. His Open Societies Foundation, just the name alone, suggests to us, it's a dead giveaway, what his ideology is. But one of the predominant things that he's been doing in our country, the predominant impact that he's had in our country is the progressive, so-called progressive prosecutors I hate the word progressive. I don't like to use it to identify anything on the left because progress is a word that has a generally positive connotation and nothing about the leftist agenda is well, has any kind of positive connotation or has any kind of positive impact. It's not progress, it's not achievement. The only thing it might be doing is progressing past a free and equal society, but for better or for worse, progressive prosecutors is how a lot of people understand these these district attorneys that George Soros put a ton of funding behind, continues to put a ton of funding behind, and these progressive prosecutors shouldn't even call themselves prosecutors because they're not actually in office to prosecute crime. They are, as George Soros identified in a Wall Street Journal article in which he bragged about funding these prosecutors, right? He called them reform-minded prosecutors. Now, of course, that's a mischaracterization. It doesn't tell the whole story. These prosecutors, we've seen them from in San Francisco. I mean, in San Francisco, Chesa Boudin, um, the son of domestic terrorists, who was elected as district attorney there, actually got recalled. He got kicked out of office. Alvin Bragg, district attorney in Manhattan, who is going after both Donald Trump on a phony charge and after Daniel Penny, the U.S. Marine who defended himself and uh, himself and others on the New York subway against Jordan Neely, who was threatening to kill people. These are progressive prosecutors. These are quote unquote reform-minded prosecutors. These are people who don't believe in our criminal justice system, who don't believe that criminals should go to jail, who don't believe in incarceration, who don't believe in bail, who don't believe. In a in our nation, as it's built, a nation of laws where there's consequences for breaking criminal statutes. Right? We see the consequences of this in cities across the country, as crime rates are surging, as um, violent criminals are perhaps arrested, but then either let out with no bail, or you know, plead down to very small charges, serve a very short amount of time, and then commit other crimes once they're released. And so this is what I did. I dug a little bit into the data of what the impact of these quote-unquote reform-minded prosecutors, what what has actually happened? I mean, we can see these sort of anecdotal cases like Donald Trump or Daniel Penny. We saw what happened in San Francisco um, with Chessa Boudin, but what are the actual numbers? What what are our cities suffering when it comes to um, the situation that we're in now with crime compared to what it was before Soros-funded prosecutors took over these positions? And again, again, It's not just that George Soros wants to destroy the nation state, wants to destroy our borders through this euphemism he calls open society. Destroying our criminal justice system is also one of the ways that Antonio Gramsci suggested that we destroy our civil society. So George Soros is maybe just really clever. Maybe he actually is the supervillain that Elon Musk suggests him to be because what he's doing is he's targeting these aspects of of our society, of our country, and if he is successful, our country actually will collapse. Because without borders or without a criminal justice system, we won't be able to survive. We, Our civilization will fall apart, it will crumble. And George Soros is bragging about funding this. So this is from the Heritage Foundation. They write, as Rafael Manguel of the Manhattan Institute noted in his recent book, Criminal Injustice, what the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts most, While blacks constitute 13.4% of the population, they made up more than 53% of the nation's homicide victims in 2020. So think about this for a second. Back up from the statistic. Black people in our country made up more than half of homicide victims in our country. And when violent criminals commit a violent crime and are arrested and then they're let out on no bail, no cash bail, or they are given a light sentence and allowed back into the community, what happens? Well, they they often commit crimes again. They often harm other people. They often, especially when it's a violent a violent criminal, if they've killed someone, they often kill someone again. It's called recidivism. That is that is um, the reality that criminals once they've committed a crime, even if they're convicted, even if they serve time, it's not it's not very reformative. Incarceration is not a reformative process. There have been efforts to try to make it reformative, but it hasn't been very successful. And when criminals are let out early, they tend to Commit more crimes, and so who stands to who stands to be hurt the most? If the if fifty three percent of homicide victims in our country are black people, and murderers are let out early, well, then the logical conclusion is that the people that are most likely to be murdered by the criminals who are let out of prison early are going to be black people, since they're the ones most likely to be murdered in the first place. This is from this this is, I suppose, a secondary point to the Marxist ideology behind the policies that George Soros is supporting, but it also completely debunks the left when the left says, oh, these reform-minded prosecutors are actually pursuing racial justice. These reform-minded prosecutors are trying to solve the over-incarceration problem. These reform-minded prosecutors are trying to Um, create equity in our prison system so that there's not a disparity between the percentage of black people who, uh, or the the percentage of black people in our population compared to the percentage of black people incarcerated, because they say there's a disparity. More black people, percentage-wise, compared to white people are incarcerated. And they claim that just that in and of itself constitutes an injustice instead of analyzing the behavior, the crimes that were committed by the people who are incarcerated, and the crimes have nothing to do with skin color, they have everything to do with behavior. So this is a secondary point that debunks the left's narrative that reformed-minded prosecutors serve the left or serve minorities or serve any kind of racial justice. They don't, they don't. In fact, racial minorities and quote unquote marginalized communities are the ones who are most vulnerable to crime, And therefore, they are the ones who are most vulnerable for more crime being committed when violent criminals are let out early by reform-minded prosecutors, right? Heritage goes on to say, in fact, the US Sentencing Commission in June released a report on a study that found that, quote, the odds of recidivism were lower for federal offenders sentenced to more than 60 months incarceration compared to a matched group of offenders receiving shorter sentences. The odds of recidivism were approximately 29% lower for federal offenders sentenced to more than 120 months incarceration. It's funny that George Soros and the left and these quote unquote reform-minded prosecutors never mention this statistic. It would be interesting to see in a completely unbiased poll when a group or if a group of Democrats and a group of Republicans were presented with this fact, presented with the fact that violent criminals who serve longer prison sentences are almost 30% less likely to commit crimes again. Whether Democrats and Republicans, because this is both Democrats and Republicans too, right? It's not, it's not just Democrats. Whether they would be more prone to saying, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't be focusing on quote-unquote over-incarceration. Maybe we should be focusing on analyzing what length prison sentence makes an offender less likely to be a repeat offender upon release. But that's, of course, not what we're, that's, of course, not what we're presented with um, by the left. So bail specifically, this has been an issue. This no cash bail specifically has gained traction in cities across our country. I dug into statistics on this as well, and it's pretty interesting when you see the numbers right before your face. It doesn't exactly match what George Soros and the left are telling us. Okay, so Heritage continues by saying, two law professors analyzed a Cook County, Illinois, bail reform study, which supposedly showed that lax bail laws do not impact the crime rate, and found, contrary to the study's findings, that the bail reform changes in Cook County appear to have led to a substantial increase in crimes committed by pretrial releases in Cook County. Their analysis also found that the number of released defendants charged with committing new crimes increased by 45%. Worse yet, the number of pretrial releases charged with committing new violent crimes increased by an estimated 33%. So these statistics, I think, are, are chilling, first of all. I mean, this is human lives we're dealing with. This is not just uh, not just an abstract analysis, it's not just numbers. This means that more people in our country are being harmed, more people are the victims of crime because of George Soros-funded, quote-unquote, reformed-minded prosecutors. So when Elon Musk calls, calls George Soros a, um, a, Marvel, a Marvel supervillain, he's right. There's not good intentions that exist in George Soros' political activism. It's not anti-Semitic to identify the influence that George Soros has over politics when it's his money that he's specifically donating to political activism in order to beget these circumstances in our country. He's paying for the destruction of our country. If that doesn't make him a supervillain, I don't know what does, but the left doesn't want you to see these statistics. The left doesn't want you to understand that it's not just an anecdotal evidence from Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, you know, going after Trump or going after Daniel Penny, that it's not just San Francisco's Chesa Boudin, that that crazy uh, son of domestic terrorists that San Francisco fortunately recalled and kicked out of office. These aren't isolated incidents. This is the exact intention that George Soros had when he funded these candidates. The left doesn't want you to see this, so they hide behind this veil of, oh, let's call them anti-Semitic. Let's tell them that they hate Jewish people. Let's tell them that they're being bigoted racist. Let's try to associate them with some of the most evil ideology the world has ever known. And then maybe they won't notice that their friends and family, their community, are more likely to be hurt and victimized and killed because of the political activism funded by George Soros. It's grotesque. And you gotta love Elon Musk for just calling their bluff and sending out this tweet. Okay. So on social media, I asked you guys what the most controversial topics you could think of were, and you guys sent me some doozies. Some doozies. Let's go through a couple of them, shall we? Some of you requested anonymity. You wanted to talk about these topics without well, without having your name splashed out there. Um, and so I'll try to I'll I'll try to be discreet with some of your names. I'll just use maybe a first name. The first question is from Julie. Julie says childhood vaccinations. Well, Julie, that is indeed jumping into one of the most controversial topics on the planet. I actually think childhood vaccines are is a more hot button topic even than say abortion. I don't know a topic that gets people's emotions up, that gets people in a lather more than vaccines. And I'm talking about people on both sides of the vaccine issue, both the kind of militant pro-vaxxers and the folks um, known as anti-vaxxers, uh, this is one of the most highly highly fraught topics. And listen, here's what I'll say. I've given a lot of thought to how much it's appropriate for me to share about the decisions that my husband and I made or are making for our daughter when it comes to the CDC-recommended childhood immunization schedule. Part of me, because I feel very strongly about... about this issue, as does every other parent, uh, whatever your position on it is. And in a sense, I would like to share every little detail of the process that I use to discern what to do, what information I use to um, substantiate my decisions. At the same time, it's not just my political decision. It's not just my decision, medical decision. Um, I do want to talk about this, but I I, want to be very cognizant of being respectful of my daughter because it can. I mean, it can be her choice to talk about those types of things if and when she would ever want to do that, right? Um, I don't want to. I don't want to betray her privacy when she's just when she's just a tiny baby. I will say that I'm reading a book right now that I highly recommend that you read. It's super good. Um, it's called Dissolving Illusions, and it's a history of disease, communicable disease, specifically in the United States and in the UK over the 19th century. So in the 1800s, specifically in the mid 1800s, the late 1800s. And it's really interesting because childhood disease or diseases that killed children during that time period are some of the diseases that um, we vaccinate against now. And it's really interesting to see how different aspects of our society have changed notwithstanding vaccination. So hygiene, for example, and sewage systems, and nutrition, and child labor laws, and all different kinds of things that impact people's health, their vulnerability to diseases, or our ability to uh, treat diseases when you actually contract diseases. So it's a really interesting. It's called dissolving illusions because we kind of have this idea in our society now that the diseases that we face now or that we could face now are exactly the same. That is a one-to-one comparison of these same diseases when we when we face them as a society um, in the 1800s in the 19th century, and that's not true. It's not. It's not even kind of true. And it's really eye-opening to dissolve those illusions that um, that exist around the diseases that we so often vaccinate for. I've also openly told the story. I have no problem telling this story. I openly told the story about what happened to so my husband and I, um, the day that my daughter was born, how I did not do the hep B vaccine on the day that she was born, because why? I don't have hep B and she's not, therefore, at risk of it. Um, and they sent in, the hospital sent in a neonatologist to basically bully us into try to do this. And I was like, oh, why does she need it? I don't have, I don't have hep B. And they tell me, well, it's in case you, you know, get in a car wreck on the way home and your baby needs a blood transfusion. And maybe that blood is contaminated with hep B. And man, man, for the rest of my life, I will wish that I had, um, you know, that my brains weren't quite as scrambled as they are right after you give birth. And that I had been like, oh, how many times does that happen in the United States? But You know, you always think of the funniest and the wittiest comebacks after a situation is over. Um, So childhood vaccines, this is what I will say. I know know the CDC has a recommended schedule. My philosophy on life is to be skeptical of everything. Question everything. Demand substantiation. Think independently. Do not defer to the so-called experts just because they claim the title of the experts. There's plenty of information out there so that you can decide what's best um, for you and your family. And you know what? If someone calls you an anti-vaxxer for thinking for yourself, if your pediatrician gaslights you, fire that pediatrician. Find one who won't. And I mean, listen, we're conservatives. We've been called every name in the book when it comes to politics. It really shouldn't bother us that much. If if when we question the medical industry, if we are also called um, all kinds of names, really let it roll off your back. Okay. Next question is from Conservative Mama who says, this is Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura, for anybody who doesn't know this, is the Protestant dogma on theology, meaning a reliance only on the Bible without any outside interpretation, without any authority for the interpretation of the Bible. This is uh in contrast to the Catholic view, which says, okay, the Bible is the word of God, it's inerrant, but in order to properly interpret it, we have tradition, which means the Bible wasn't, after all, compiled uh, for three, four hundred years after after Jesus was on earth. It was compiled and interpreted by the magisterium of the church, the church that uh, Christ handed down to his apostles, the apostolic tradition still exists in the catholic church. So that's that's the the little contrast here. It is a very controversial topic. My my opinion on sola scriptura is that it's actually ironically unbiblical because if you are relying only on the bible, the bible where does the bible say that you should interpret the bible sola scriptura? Just just the bible. The bible never says that. In fact, the only the only time the bible mentions sola scriptura is to condemn it, is to say that sola scriptura is incorrect, that that's not the way to interpret the bible. So I'm Catholic, you guys know this, so of course that's that's my position it aligns with the Catholic Church. But even if I weren't Catholic, I could never embrace sola scriptura because it's it's literally unbiblical. It's also, by the way, um, Protestants who claim to adhere to sola scriptura don't actually they don't they don't just uh, adhere to what's in the Bible. And the best example of this is the Trinity. The Bible never actually says Trinity. The Bible never actually describes the Trinity. This is something we derive from. Um, the Bible, but moreover, we de- we derive it from the teaching authority of the church, from the magisterium of the church. the The magisterium is is basically just uh, the oral tradition of the church, right? So when Jesus was on earth, and then his apostles, his apostles were supposed to teach his gospel. His apostles ordained others after them to continue to teach his gospel, and that's what happened for generations before the Bible was put together. So that that tradition, that oral tradition of protecting the gospel, protecting Uh, the Word of God uh, was passed person to person through this apostolic tradition before the Bible even was put together. So um, the Trinity is a good example of something that Protestants believe in, but it's not articulated in the Bible. It's something that was passed down through the tradition, the Catholic tradition, the apostolic tradition. So um, I'm a thumbs down on Sola Scriptura. Okay, our next one here is from Maud Etruge, who says reparations. Oh, reparations! We had a whole show on reparations. Uh, I think two weeks ago. So if you haven't if you haven't listened to that show, go on back and look that up. You can just go to Apple Podcasts and look up Liz Wheeler reparations, or same thing on YouTube. Reparations are socialism. Reparations are redistribution of wealth, and they're actually emotionally ex- uh, they're emotionally exploiting you to justify redistribution of wealth because this is what the Democrats know. They know if they if they look at the American public and this is a good commentary on the, Ameri- um, on the American public still, if they, if they present an idea to the general population of our country and say, listen, we as the government think that we should be allowed to um, go on your phone and go into your bank account app and take some of your money and transfer it to somebody else who doesn't work, who hasn't sacrificed the way that you have, just because we think that that's fair, the American public's gonna rebel. The American public's gonna be like, I don't think so, get out of my bank account. But this is what the left wants to do. And so the left says, okay, how do we package this in a way that's going to make the people that we're stealing from feel guilty telling us to stop stealing from them? And so they bring in what's one of the most divisive topics in our nation, races, right? This is a topic where we have achieved so much in our country, we've overcome so much that people are very sensitive to the idea of race because they want to make sure that we are continuing in the proper direction, that we are fulfilling our founders' vision of a nation that is colorblind, that a nation where every person is equal under the law regardless of any immutable characteristic, right? And so the left says, okay, let's tell white people that they'll be racist if they tell us." as government officials, as politicians, to stop stealing from our bank account and giving it to other people. Let's pretend that they owe black people money because of something that happened 200 years ago, 300 years ago in our country. And so this is what they do. They, they trick people. Reparations is, is, are completely unjust. It's just socialism packaged in a way that is attempting to make it difficult for you to say, I don't think so. I don't think so. That is wrong. Reparations are ridiculous. No white person today has ever enslaved a black person, and no black person today has ever been enslaved by a white person. This, the, the crime of slavery in our country, the evil of slavery, happened generations ago, generations ago, and there is no moral justification possible to tell a white person today that they owe money to a black person just on the basis of race. Do not fall for it. Okay, what is next here? Oh, these are some really controversial topics, guys. Uh, Diaz Bliaz says, Controversial topic, is gay a sin? Well, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, I am a practicing Catholic. I adhere to the doctrine of the Catholic Church. The doctrine of the Catholic Church, the biblical doctrine of the Catholic Church, teaches that m- sex belongs in marriage and that marriage is between one man and one woman. Therefore, anything outside the confines of marriage between one man and one woman, any sexual activity outside of those confines, is a sin. That includes homosexuality. Is it a sin to have same-sex attraction? No, as long as you're not indulging in lustful thoughts, as long as you're not taking part in homosexual behavior, homosexual sexual activity. But is homosexuality or same-sex uh sexual activity a sin in my opinion? Well, not just my opinion. In my belief system, yes, it is. That's the, been the worldview of our civilization for a long time, and that's certainly the judeo christian worldview. And you're right. It's a very controversial topic. Um, even among conservatives, even the Republican Party has a hard time with this one, hard time admitting this now because they don't want to they don't want to turn off liberals. Okay. Ethan Washley says, cohabitation, reluctance to marry. This actually is a very controversial topic. And again, the best kind of controversial topics, you guys are, these are good ones. The best kind of controversial topic is something that's controversial, not just along political lines, but that's uh, controversial culturally. And this one's true. This is probably, probably skews, yes. Probably more liberal couples live together before marriage than conservative couples, but a lot of Republicans do this as well. Most A lot of young people do this. It's probably more age-stratified than it is even politically stratified, and it's not a good idea. It's not a good idea for multiple reasons, um, primarily because it leads to higher divorce rates. If you cohabitate before marriage, then um, you are more likely to have your marriage end. You are more likely to face divorce, and whether or not you're a religious person, that's not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for your spouse. It's not good for... Uh, any potential children that you may have that leads. Divorce leads to the breakdown of our society. Divorce leads to so many societal ills, and if you can avoid that, if you can avoid the brokenness and the heartache and the negative impact on society that divorce has, then you should hold off living together until you're married. This, of course, doesn't even take into account the moral component. The moral component is that if you're cohabitating, you are most likely engaging in premarital sex, which again is not the proper context for sex, but um, yeah, it's a very controversial topic. You should not be living together before marriage. Okay. There are, I have a whole list here still of controversial questions. We are running out of time here, so we're going to do some more questions. We're going to talk about, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the COVID vax. We're going to be talking about the death penalty. We're going to be talking about abortion in the case of rape. We're going to be talking about, ooh, storming the Capitol. Um, we are going to be talking about all kinds. Oh, the Epstein client list. So head on over to LizWheeler.com. You don't want to miss this. These really are some of the most controversial topics. And they cross the political spectrum, the political divide, which makes them truly controversial topics. LizWheeler.com. And make sure to leave a comment at the bottom of the website in the comment section and let me know if you can think of any more controversial topics or what you think of the website, what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see there. LizWheeler.com. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show.